It was a headline that would change history. Everything stopped and was on pause so you could understand what this was going to mean for you. The headline, The Day Twinkies Died. On November 21st, 2012, the production of Hostess Twinkies stopped. There were protests by hungry Twinkie lovers around the country, and psychologists were braced for what they called TWS, Twinkie Withdrawal Syndrome. And it sounds like a joke. This is the words of a doctor here. It sounds like a joke, but it's real. Many people feel comforted by Twinkies and Ding Dongs, and when they are taken away cold turkey like this, it can cause a great deal of psychological stress. One boy stated, if I don't have a Twinkie every day, I'll die. I will. They've been with me through everything. Well, good news for that kid. Twinkies came back eight months later, and I hope he was able to find a way to survive those long eight months. Now, I don't know how the death of Twinkies affected each one of you. I'm guessing by your reactions, it didn't really bother you too much. <laughs> Me either. But for some people, for a few people, Twinkies were more than just a tasty snack. They were a companion. They were something that's been with them through everything. A golden sponge of cream-filled happiness in the world of doom and gloom. The death of Twinkies was not just the death of a snack. It was the death of an escape. The death of hope. The death of happiness. It was a headline that left most people unaffected before the few hostess snack enthusiasts. They were devastated. This morning we're going to look at a headline that actually did change history. I was trying to think of a good one that I could use, but there's so many headlines that have changed history, I didn't know how to use one, so I just went with the Twinkies. Probably not the best one. But this one that we're looking at today is one that actually did change history. The headline, Behold, My Servant. Now follow along with me as I read what this headline is all about in Isaiah chapter 42, reading verses 1 through 9. And I invite you to stand out of respect for God's word. It's Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9, reading in Jesus' name. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, and who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Father God, these are your words. We thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would sanctify us in your truth this morning. Open up our hearts to receive the message that you have for us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. As we behold the servant this morning, there are a few questions that we have to ask. The first one is, who is the servant? The next one, what's this servant going to do? Why does this servant even matter? And when is the servant going to come? 
Let's begin by identifying who this servant is. Looking at the text, it begins with this exclamation. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll notice there are a bunch of servants of the Lord, but this one was unique. This servant is the only servant that has a description like this one. So what is this description? How does Isaiah describe who this servant is? He begins by saying, my servant, speaking on behalf of the Lord. He is known as the Lord's servant. He is one who has come to do God's will. He will be one who was upheld by God. The servant will have God's spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the streets. Other servants who came, came in might. They came with power. They came with armies. But this one comes alone. This one comes humbly and quietly and meek. We're just three verses into this description, and I hope you already have an idea of who this servant is. It sounds a lot like another servant. Not another servant in the Old Testament, but a servant in the New Testament. It sounds like a servant who... A servant who is described as one who says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me, my Father, one of whom it is said he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. A servant who had the Holy Spirit descend upon him in bodily form like a dove and with a voice from heaven opening up saying, You are my beloved Son, In you I am well pleased. The servant was one who came to fulfill the law and to fulfill all righteousness. One who didn't cry out for justice. One who didn't plead innocence on his way to execution, even though he had every right. The servant is the same one that's described in Isaiah. The servant was and is Jesus Christ. The announcement comes in a time of turmoil for Israel. A time when people were looking to molten images for guidance and for direction, looking for any kind of hope they can find, going any place. And here God calls out to them amidst the noise of all of the distractions of this world, saying, Behold, my servant, this is the one you are looking for. Don't look to all these other things. Look at my servant. But why look at him? What's different about this servant? What is this servant going to do? Isaiah writes that he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice. There seems to be a main idea here that keeps coming up, and we see it again in verse 4. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. The servant is first and foremost going to bring justice. It wasn't going to be easy, and it wasn't going to be cheap. Verse 4 doesn't say he'll never be disheartened, he will never be crushed. But it says it's not going to happen until after he has accomplished justice. This was the purpose of Christ's coming to earth in the first place, to accomplish justice, to do his Father's will, to bring justice. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what is justice? Is justice just vengeance? Is it just getting back someone who's wronged you in the past? Is justice applying more of the law to yourself than what you break? Is justice doing more right than wrong? No, justice is doing what is right. Justice is doing what is just. It's fulfilling the whole law, not just the whole law, not just bits and pieces. 
And Paul says that Christ came to accomplish this justice. And as he did it, God displayed him publicly as a propitiation, as the penalty for sin, so that he would be both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What Paul's saying is God was displaying Christ publicly on the cross. So look at the cross. This is the cost of justice. This is justice, Christ paying the penalty for all sin. This is where sin leads. As Jesus Christ stretched out on the cross and as he yells, it is finished and he gives up his spirit, he has accomplished justice. The cross was where Christ did this. The cross was where Jesus paid the penalty for every single one of your sins and every single one of my sins. And the cross was where Jesus stepped in and took my place, died the death that I deserve. We cry out for justice today, but do we really know what that means? And are you and I really ready to pay the price that justice demands? Thanks be to God that Christ has paid that price, and we no longer have to. He's accomplished justice. He came not to dish it out, but to take it upon himself for your sake and for my sake. The servant would be a covenant to the people. A covenant wasn't a new idea in the Old Testament. There were lots of covenants that were made. The Jews were very familiar with them. The covenants passed down from generation to generation included promises as being as numerous as the stars. Promises of having their own land. Promises of having a king who will one day rule forever. But this would be a new covenant. This covenant wouldn't be anything earthly. It wouldn't be validated by the blood of bulls and goats like these other covenants were. But this would be validated by the blood of this servant. And this blood would cleanse your conscience because this blood would cleanse your sin. It would also bring eternal life. Jesus instituted this new covenant through his blood, instructing his disciples, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The servant has instituted the new covenant. He has accomplished justice. And that's great for his disciples who were there when he did this, but what does this have to do for us? Who is this new covenant for? What good does it do for these people in Isaiah's day? Verses 6 through 7, we read, He is appointed as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. It still doesn't sound like Isaiah is describing us, does it? does it? We're not in prison. We're not really in darkness. We're not blind. But Isaiah isn't talking about a physical prison. He's not talking about physical darkness or physical blindness. This blindness is spiritual. Having your eyes closed to the things of God, not seeing your own sin and the problems that it creates, the barrier it brings between you and God, not being able to see the light of Christ. This prison isn't physical, though I suppose in one sense it is. For as long as we live on this earth, we live in our bodies. And as long as we live in our bodies of flesh, we still have our sinful nature tied to us. No matter how hard we try to escape it, there's no escaping it. There's no appeasing this sinful nature. You can't just throw it a bone one time and say, now go eat your bone and leave me alone. The sinful nature is always there, always biting and nipping at your heels, begging to be fed. There's no appeasing it. Instead, we must kill it. It must be starved. It must be crucified with Christ on the cross. As Christ has taken upon himself on the cross, your sinful nature and my sinful nature 
He has nailed that to the cross as we looked at that in Sunday school this morning. But we still feel its presence, don't we? We still smell its decaying stench. We still hear its lies, begging us to go one step farther, to stay one more minute, to go one more, to click one more time. We listen to its lies. But Christ has come to deliver us from ourselves, to deliver us from our sinful natures, and not just from our sinful natures, but from the devil as well, to rescue us from the domain of darkness and to transfer us to the kingdom of his son, the kingdom of Christ. You see, before Christ, we're all dead in our sins. We're all blind to our own condition. We're in chains, and we don't even realize it. But when Christ comes and he tells us how to live, all of a sudden we begin to feel those chains. Christ is telling us, come this way. And we try, and we can't because we're chained back. And we begin to think, well, maybe I don't need to go over here. These chains aren't so bad after all. And we become content with where we're at. But as Christ sheds his light on our helpless estate, we begin to see what vile creatures lie inside each and every one of us. We begin to see how wicked and horrible these chains are, and we try to free ourselves. But the more we struggle, the more and more tangled up we get in these chains. But the servant has come to be a new covenant for the people to drive away the darkness with his light, to open blind eyes, and to set us free from this bondage of sin. Isaiah writes down that the servant is coming. When he comes, he will bring justice. He'll bring freedom. He'll bring sight. And we have the privilege of looking back to see when and where it was accomplished. But for the people in Isaiah's day, for the people who first heard this message, they didn't have that luxury. What does this mean for them? He's coming too late, right? Who is he coming for? Who is a servant coming for? We've already looked briefly at this, but let me highlight it again in verse 1. We see the servant is being sent to accomplish something. Not just to bring bring justice wherever he is, but to bring justice to who? To the nations. His justice is going to be brought to the earth, even to the distant coastlands, to the islands far off. They would be waiting expectantly for this law, for this message, for this hope of this servant coming for them. In verse 6, there are two groups of people who are named here. There's the people and there are the nations. This is a very Jewish way to describe a Jewish worldview. The Jews would be the people and everybody else would just be the nations, not quite the category of people like they are. This servant was to be a covenant to the people, but not just to the Jews, but he would be a light to the rest of the world as well. As you look in your Bibles, as you read this passage, you see that it's indented, right? It's not how you would write an essay. It's because it's poetry. And it's one of the ways that Hebrew poetry works, that it gives you one line, and the next line further explains that line, or expounds it to further its meaning. And that's what's happening here in our text. He says he'll be a covenant to the people, not just to the people, but a light to the nations. It's the same thing. He goes on in verse 7, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. This was more than just for the people. This was to the nations, to the coastlands, to all the people who are far off, for the people in Isaiah's day, for the people in our day, for you and for me. It all sounds too good to be true. Someone is coming to bring justice, to bring a new covenant to us, to open up blind eyes, to set us free. But would it ever come? We know that it would take around 700 years after this prophecy is given to God's people. 
but they didn't know how long it was going to take. We get to look back and see it fulfilled, but they just had to hold on to the promise that one day, someday, hopefully, this servant who God has promised to us will come. But as they hold, held on to that promise, they weren't without witness. In verse 9, Isaiah writes this, Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Here they're given a sneak peek of this coming attraction, a movie trailer to what this servant was going to do when he came. But how could they know he would do it? They wouldn't be around to see him accomplish it. How would he come for them if they've died earlier? The Lord tells them to consider all of the former things that have come to pass. Think of all the other times when God has made a covenant with his people. Look back at the Old Testament. Open up your history books and see all the things that God has already fulfilled. He's surely going to fulfill his word here again. And if anyone had their memory lost, they forgot what God had done, he gives his resume in verse 5 saying this, Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out all the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people and on it and spirit to those who walk in it. That's an impressive resume, isn't it? And God's saying, look around you. He's created all of these things. Listen to your lungs. God is the one who is filling them with air. Feel your pulse. God is the one who is causing your heart to beat. If you can't believe what he's done in the past, look at yourself right now and know that God is providing for all of your needs. Surely he is able to keep his promises. So God called them to hold on to this promise in faith, to trust in him. For the people in Isaiah's day, all they had to do was look around them and see all that God had done and believe that he could and would do what he has promised. For you and me in 2017, we get to look back at Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve and to fulfill the job description of this servant. We can see him fulfilling it to the T. And now we may not be able to physically see him as great as that would be, but we see. He reveals himself to us in his word. We once were blind to everything, but Christ has revealed himself to us. We too once were chained in captivity to our sin, but Christ has taken our chains upon himself. He has spilled his blood to dissolve our chains from us, to initiate a new covenant for you and for me, a covenant where we find forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, a covenant where we see Jesus fulfilling the law's demands on your behalf, on my behalf, taking upon himself our sins. And we see the compassionate Savior who, as it says in Isaiah, will not break a bruised reed and will not extinguish a dimly burning wick. This morning as we behold the servant, are you a battered and a bruised reed? One that's been kicked by the world? Is your wick just one more critique away or just one more breath away from being snuffed out? We can try to find comfort and hope and escape and happiness and lots of different things. This world promises to give them to you, but this world is full of empty promises. Instead, behold the servant. Look to the one who can give you comfort and hope and freedom and joy and does give you these things. The one who always keeps his promises, the one who has given his only son for you and bring your hurts your battered lives, your bruised reeds, your burdened conscience to Jesus and live in this new covenant where we find the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you, Lord, for all of the covenants that you have given to us. Especially, Lord, for this new covenant, this covenant in your blood, that you have come to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, that we can no longer be defined by our past, by our failures, but we can be defined as being clothed in Christ, righteous, holy, and blameless. Thank you for the hope that you give us, Lord, the hope of eternal life, the hope of forgiveness, the hope of meaning. Thank you for giving us comfort, happiness, joy, and escape from all the things in the world. God, I pray that as we looked in your word today that you would cause us to dwell on these truths, that you would cause us to behold your servant, to look to you in every single one of our times of needs. Help us always to remember the things that you have done and to know, Lord, that you will accomplish your word, that you will keep your promises. We praise you for this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.